Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Beer. He's a managing member at DBI, formerly Dynamic Beta Investments. It's a firm that manages ETFs and mutual funds that help implement hedge fund strategies with low fees, liquidity, and total transparency. Uh, One of the ETFs is DBMF. That's a managed future strategy packaged in the ETF. And DBEH is a long, short hedge fund approach also packaged in ETF. They bring alternative strategies to the public liquid markets in an ETF format. And instead of paying something crazy like two and 20, their fees are 85 bips. Andrew has nearly 30 years of experience in the hedge fund industry and previously worked at the at the Ball Post Group with the legendary Seth Klarman. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Appreciate you having me on. What first made you catch the investing bug? What got you interested in, in, the, in the subject in the industry? So I went into finance. Actually, first I was a, an M&A banker. And so I was actually really working with people who were thinking about buying other things. That was, and this is in the early 1990s. And that, you know, one of the fascinating things is, is areas that are kind of backwaters can become very, very big. And M&A was a very, very hot, you know, if you wanted to get, get the cool job in 1989 or 1990, when I was getting out of college, it was, it was M&A banking. You know, this was Bruce Wasserstein, Joe Perella, you know, these kind of legends in the industry. And, but that space had been something of a backwater. So an emerging area at the time though, was, using the skills you learned in M&A to then go out and buy companies. And that really became the leverage buyout business. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with the with changes in technology and dissemination of information that you could, you had computers, you could run discounted cash flow analyses, you could model corporate profits and try to decide what people were going to do with them. And so I ended up getting on, I first, I, I was going down the private equity path. And then I, you know, went in my second year of business school, two of my professors who had been, they were part of founding Baupost. So Baupost was an acronym of five different guys' names. And, and the I PO- I didn't know that. Yeah. And the, the PO and the ST were two actually guys who were entrepreneurs, but also investors, professors at business school. I had them both as professors. And, and I think one of them, and then the other one said, you got to go meet this guy, Seth. And, you know, he runs a hedge fund. I said, I've no idea what that was. I was not a guy at this point who was, you know, looking around, figuring out what stocks to buy. I just, I didn't have that sort of general, I didn't grow up with that kind of like, you know, investing vibe of trying to buy dollars for 50 cents or anything else. I just, but I, I just found it intellectually fascinating. Cool. And you worked for Seth Klarman. So, so what was that like? What did you learn in your time working for Seth Klarman? Yeah, so, so Seth is, I mean, Seth is, is, is absolutely brilliant and he has, you know, he has this, a sort of steel trap of a mind that you, you know, you tell them the statistics, you tell them that the free float on a stock. And then 18 months later, you have a conversation with him and he remembers it to two or three decimal places. And, and he like Buffett has a way, I mean, the great investors have a way of kind of seeing through the fog of information and focusing on, on the key points and issues. And so, you know, back then, what I found really interesting about it relative to something like leverage buyouts, or even just kind of general investing is the stuff that they were doing is very arcane. 
It was very esoteric. And and the world, you know, a hedge, the whole point of a hedge fund back then is you could do things that other people couldn't do. And if you read Seth's book, you know, they were doing things that the average investor wouldn't bother doing. I mean, they were a lot of the banking system were set up as mutual companies and basically just owned by the depositors and uh, similar to what, what Vanguard is today. And they were converting to publicly traded companies. Well, the only way you could buy the stock was essentially if you had bank accounts. So they had a guy there who spent a lot of time opening bank accounts, checking accounts basically in banks all over the country, waiting for them to convert. You know, a lot of kind of rolling up your sleeves. You know, what, so what I ended up doing was basically, I love the complexity of it. But a lot of things that people take for granted today, it was, there were just all these structural impediments. So one of the things I got interested in was Japanese financial institutions are, were, had been investors in private equity funds in the 1980s. And the 1990s roll around, the guys who had been there in the 1980s had all been pulled back to Japan. Japan was going through its crisis. You had these kind of, you know, these kind of shells of businesses in the US. And I knew some people who had connections in in Japanese banks. So I literally start to go door to door in Japanese banks and try to figure out what they owned and what they might be willing to sell. But but again, you know, and and but the kinds of questions that Seth would ask, there was Seth is absolutely brilliant, but there's also humility to it. You know, his, his because we're all generalists, we're all trying to learn about other people's businesses that have been doing it for 20 or 30 years. So what fresh insight what what fresh perspective can we bring to it but also they're smart right they know this stuff a, a, a guy who's been following pharmaceutical companies at a sell-side bank for 20 years is always going to know more about those pharmaceutical companies but but if people are dumping them for some reason or if people are dumping junk bonds because you know they've been downgraded and there's a structural reason why they can't hold them or they're selling you know you have the government selling real estate that they'd taken over from the savings and loan, it was always, why is it cheap? So, you know, so he was, um, so I, that's, that, that's where I learned it. And when I got there, it was, the firm was a fraction of the size it ultimately became. I think I was probably PM four or five or six or something like that. And, and you just walk in the office and with this, you know, your, your mandate is to, is to, to look for dollars that you can buy for 50 cents or less. Yeah, in any market and in anywhere he can find it. Yeah, I mean, and, and and that was you know that was the those were the great early days of the hedge fund industry. Mm. They were doing different things. They had you know they were they they had pools of capital where, God, when I was there, I mean, they were buying privatization vouchers in Russia as as Russia was going restructuring its economy. They were buying real estate from the government agency called the Res Resolution Trust Company that was mandated with taking this thing and selling it off. But, you know, each of those things required real work. They were mm. their whole businesses. I mean, you don't, there was no exchange to buy these things. You had to actually, so, I mean, so my interview was actually about one of these really complicated situations. They gave me a like 400 page prospectus to read in 20 minutes and then grilled me with with questions on it. But ultimately the answer was, you know, ultimately, the, the big question is, why is it cheap? You know, what's the structural reason? Why do people have to sell it? Why do why do everyone else out there is smart? And how do we, you know, what what is it that we're bringing to the table that makes us comfortable that we're buying it cheaply? Because when you're sitting in that seat, it's never obvious, mm. right? It's that, I mean, you, there's a reason people are selling it, who who know about this thing are selling it. And, and so you never came to that. Was, and that's sort of part of the learning process for me was, 
because I had this sort of academic bent and you read academic papers and they kind of end up, the conclusion is it makes it sound sort of obvious. And what I found when I was doing it was if you're honest with yourself, you're 52, 48 most of the time, you know, 55, 45. It's it, very rarely do you look at it and you're like, this is an absolute no brainer. Mm-hmm. Because because if it looks if it's if it's no brainer from a valuation perspective, there's probably smoke coming out of the windows, and so and so you better hope it's not a real fire. Hmm. Yeah, something I get a kick out of. I read Margin of Safety years ago, but I remember there was a situation he described in the book where it was this company selling at like five times cash flow. There's absolutely no problems with it, and I'm like, where do I find that? I, I would do that all day long if if that existed in the modern market. <laughs> Well, it's the thing is, I mean, and I, I haven't, you know, spent any time looking at stock valuations recently. There are always companies like that, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, the thing is though that this whole idea of the value factor, right, mm-hmm. was so Fama publishes this big paper in 1992 talking about the returns of low. Let, let's be very specific. It wasn't a broad thing about you know guys who like to buy things cheaply. Everybody likes to buy things cheaply if you can. But mm-hmm. it was it was a broad conclusion that from 1962 to 1990, that companies with a low publicly traded companies with a low price to book ratio in the U.S. did much better than companies with a high price to book ratio. Mm-hmm. And and so when I when I go to Balpost, I'm aware of this research. I almost you know went into academia and thank God the head of the doctoral program at Harvard Business School saved me by telling me to to, to run for my life. But the fascinating thing about it was. What Fama was describing was going back to Seth's original question. There was a reason those companies were cheap, mm-hmm. and and so given so so now like imagine you in 1978, right? And and you there's something in your fiber where you get a serotonin hit, not out of buying a disruptive tech stock that's going to change the world with contact lenses that you know can look through walls or something. There's something in you that gets a serotonin hit from finding something cheaply, mm-hmm. you know, being somewhat of a contrarian. Okay, so you're, it's 1978. You read about this guy Warren Buffett, who's put up these killer numbers. First of all, you probably even barely have even read about him, right? Because he's he's still relatively unknown. How would you find cheap stocks then? You have to get copies of Value Line and comb through the pages and try to find something that looks attractive, which takes sure. a long time. It takes a long time, right? And so, so let's say, okay, so now you find something that looks cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Now you have to pick up your rotary phone and <laughs> call information in Boise, Idaho <laughs> to get the, the number for the company, then ask them to be patched through to investor relations. And then you ask them to send you their financial information. Financial information comes to you, right? Again, there's no internet at this point. Financial information comes to you. And you're reading the annual report, the MDNA, et cetera, et cetera. And you're doing kind of back of the envelope calculations as to how cheap this thing is. And lo and behold, it's got some asset on the balance sheet. You know, they own a large plot of land that they've owned for 60 years in downtown Atlanta that's in an area that's being gentrified. Mm-hmm. And it's carried at the co- at the price that they bought it in 1923. Okay, now you have to go figure out how much of that is worth, right? So you can do this. So when they talk about Warren Buffett, being in his attic 12 hours a day, reading annual reports, this is what he was doing. Yeah. And you can find it. And then you can find that it doesn't trade enough. Right. So now, and now you're comparing the price to what you're seeing in the Wall Street Journal, basically. Mm-hmm. If they did a stock issuance two months ago, are you going to know about it? No. 
if they have options or things that are fully diluted. So, so it wasn't, so the whole idea, but, but, but the number of people who had the wiring to want to do that for a living was like one in a hundred. Right. Mm -hmm. And Seth, that's what Seth has that wiring. Mm. He was born, he was born. It was not an academic undertaking for him. Everything he looked at the price of the cup of coffee versus the place and like everything was this, incredibly complicated matrix of value comparisons of, of different things that he could do at any given point in time. So back then you had very, very few people who were doing this exercise. And now, but the other end of the spectrum is, so why didn't more people do it? It was because it was boring as hell and you had to be set up at his investing company and who had a flexible investment company at the time doing it. Now look at the other side of it, right? Mm -hmm. Now let's say the version of you in 1978 you know, is rich and you're on Martha's Vineyard and, you know, and, and, and your privately held business that sells, you know, whatever has just given you another hundred thousand dollar distribution. You want to put it to work. How do you do that? You call your broker at Goldman, Lazard, you know, wherever you, you have your money held and you say, Hey, I've got this. What, what should I do with it? Now that the guy you're talking to is an eat what you kill commissions driven salesperson. Right. And he is not going to say, guess what I did last weekend? I went through the balance sheet of this company and I think they're undervaluing their land in Atlanta by an order of 10. And so I think we can buy this thing. And look, if we're patient and we hold it for the next 20 years, these guys are terrible at running their business, but there's only so much damage they can do, right? That's, no one wants that. Instead, your story's about, you know, Xerox, you know, these, these people can actually take a piece of paper and turn it into 20 pieces of paper mm -hmm. in half the time. Polaroid, you know, like, I mean, like it's IBM, you know, come, you know, these like. Kind of sounds like not much has changed in that regard <laughs> where people well, want the sexy, you know, well, growth I, story. Some do. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but, but the point is value investing isn't, isn't done in dank, dark basements anymore. It's yeah. not Warren Buffett doing it, doing it in his basement. And and so, so that, you know, so going back to like channeling Seth in 1994 mm -hmm. is why is it cheap, right? So you can find companies at five times cash flow today, I'm sure, right? But right. do you want to own them? Yeah, you know? there's always a problem. There's, there's always there's always a problem, right? And so, <laughs> and, 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 and like you want to own it when even in its worst, most horrible situation, you'll be okay. Mm -hmm. Like, because, and, you know, that was sort of the original thing about cigar butts, you know, where Warren, where Buffett would say, you know, you've got kind of one puff of the cigar butt, you know, all you need, like, basically you're buying something and if they don't screw it up in the next four years, you've gotten your money back and then it's all upside from there. Mm -hmm. right? But, but there was also this running joke about like, well, it's often these stocks are cheap and built to stay that way. Right. Because, because, and, and, and so, I mean, yeah, but then, you know, you layer on top of this, like what's happened to corporate America since then. So back in the 1970s, the cool thing in corporate America was to build conglomerates. You know, we're going to bring like, gee, we're going to have, we have some management philosophy that we're going to, and, and, you yeah. know, well, hell, we can, uh, you know, let's buy a publishing company and we're going to bring our things to the, you know, our, our management skill and expertise to the publishing company. We're going to do this. Then in the um, 80s, they ripped them apart. Right. 80s, well, <laughs> right. Cause, cause, but, it, and it, but in since then, things like shareholder stock options, right? Stock options were very controversial. So you basically mm -hmm. had all of these public companies in the US that either had a, lot, a zillion of them, like the opportunity set. They were either these conglomerates who 
did everything in an okay or mediocre fashion with guys who were running all sorts of various divisions who had no real economic skin in the game as to whether they did well or not. Mm. Right. And, and we're probably not, you know, the all-star guys that you would want running the telephone directory division of XYZ conglomerate. And, or you had these small companies that had gone public that were run by guys, you know, who'd kind of run it forever. They've kind of gone up through the ranks of it. They had the boards consisted of, you know, one friend from the country club, another one from the Rotary Club, their longtime accountant, and his brother-in-law, right? And fast forward today for 30 years, and I think this is sort of a, like a thing around where I think ESG and things get complicated is it was very, very controversial in the late 1980s when people said, and this was really driven by the LBO guys, right? People thought LBO, the barbarians are at the gate. <laughs> it was the best thing that happened to corporate America. Mm -hmm. You had guys coming in and buying these companies basically saying like, guys, step up your game or we're going to take your company and step it up for you. Yeah. And, and you, by the way, you're not going to be part of it at that point. And so independent boards, economic alignment of, of, of executives, et cetera. So even Warren Buffett, right, who was the guy who was finding the undermanaged companies like Berkshire Hathaway, a basket case company like Berkshire Hathaway, you ask Buffett today and 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 they say, what would you do with your money? And he said, I put 95% into the S&P 500 and 5% in cash. But what mm -hmm. he's saying is that, and I think he elaborated on, he said, you've got 500 super motivated guys who have clawed their way up a corporate chain to get to where they are today, who are totally economically motivated to see their companies grow and 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 generate more profits and generate more free cash flow and and you know and the S and P itself is is dynamic, right? And so then then mm -hmm. you look at the companies. Everyone complains about the Magnificent Seven dominating it. What incredible companies, though. Yeah. Right. That's I true. Mean, again, back then it was like, you know, we can't get smart people to go into manufacturing. They all watched Wall Street and now they want to be investment bankers and not doing anything to create anything. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, the very best minds in this country, I mean, yes, some of them go to hedge funds and stuff like that. But look at the guys who go work at Google. You know, look at the guys. I saw the funny stories. There's the guy who ran the doctoral program at Harvard Business School when I was there, was generally considered to be just one of the smartest guys ever. He'd gotten actually a full professorship at age 27. And, and he became a very good friend of mine. Wow. And, and his brother was the one, at, his younger brother was the guy. So this is a guy who like Harvard Business School professor. He wrote big books on competition strategy. He was running the doctoral program there. And his younger brother goes to Google and he's one of the guys who designs the algorithm. And he's like, I'm the dumb one in the family. <laughs> so, 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 so just think about that. Like, think about the guys, these, you know, full, full, like red blooded, full throated capitalists who are absolute geniuses mm -hmm. going and building companies today. So, so to me, you know, whenever you're thinking about the state of the world today, you've also got to, you've got to, it is about studying history, right? It's mm -hmm. about studying, it's about what was it back then and what's different today. And mm -hmm. so back to your point about, about, you know, I think a lot of value guys were saying, and I don't know the answer to this, but I think a lot of value guys were saying, you know, everybody we see is Kathy Wood, right? That's got to create, but no, right? There are mm -hmm. still guys who have even the basic tenets of value investing, thinking about the price at which you're paying, thinking about a concept of intrinsic value, but those things are really easy 
when you're talking about an asset-based investment. I shouldn't say easy, right? But if you're talking about real estate, you can tether it back to replacement cost. I remember a story about the Tisch family in the 1980s. I guess there was some wipeout of these offshore drilling platforms or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and and they go on a due diligence exercise. And I, I don't I don't remember what the economics were, but basically you could buy these things for a handful of million dollars, right? And 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 somebody was describing to me the due diligence trip where one of the family members was there and he's like, just seems like a lot for for a few million dollars. <laughs> Look how big it is. Right. And like, and you and you obviously couldn't take $3 million and go build a new oil drilling rig or something like that. So so there was this kind of sense of like, you could take the valuation and you could tether it back to replacement costs, something hard, you know, the underlying land things. Yeah. When in, in the 1990s, and this is, I think, you know, again, because like, again, when I went to work for Seth, I'm looking for cigar butts in the public markets. They didn't exist. Yeah. Right. Those LBXs had bought them. The same guys who... You know, they would say, well, why am I going to buy 10% of a stock with $200 million market cap? I'm just going to buy the whole thing and, you know, and kind of rip it apart and fix it or do what they were doing. So what happened with value investing is that value investing and kind of the PE mentality merged. Okay. So if I had gone and started a, you know, a separate equity long short hedge fund, the pitch that I would have done in the 1990s was intrinsic values changed. It used to be and Fama, it's an asset-based test. It's price to book. It's straightforward. Now intrinsic value is what KKR or Blackstone or Apollo would pay for this thing. Okay. That's that's my margin of safety. Is if I buy it for less, you know, or or that's my downside. Now, that's a much looser figure, right? That means I have to run, I have to forecast the cash flows of this company. Because they don't want to buy generally, I mean, that, that they didn't want to buy cigar buns, right? They yeah. wanted to buy companies that had solid cash flow that that was going to, if not, you know, grow handily, at least grow steadily. That's why they were buying kind of stable businesses, and then you leverage the hell out of them, and you get all sorts of benefits and and leverage your equity. But right, and you could leverage company and you could leverage stable companies more, but you still had to make predictions about what's management going to do with that cash. If they have a good business with cash flow and they go build seven more, you know, telephone directory factories, not such a great idea in the 1990s. So that kind of led to this whole thing of we've got to evaluate the management teams. The old value investors kind of assumed, like Seth kind of thought most stocks were kind of like Ponzi schemes. Like he didn't he didn't believe in management <laughs> and management doing great things. Right? Yeah, like management is just exploiting the company for their own compensation and exactly. jets. Exactly. They're and not to be stuff. trusted. Yeah. They're not okay. to be trusted, right? The new generation of value investors were we want to buy good companies at a reasonable price. So which which was in a sense what happened. So it was actually they moved closer to growth. Hmm. Instead of as opposed to being the cigar, but so so in the 1990s and, and the standard bearers of things like this were firms like Tiger Global, believe it or not. I mean, Julian Robertson was had very much of a value investing bias, but it was also, you know, you want to stare at the management team in the eye. We want to see what they're doing. You want to make sure that they're motivated. So so during the 1990s, value investing changed. Now, it changed in a way that Buffett had already changed in the 1980s. Yeah, because Buffett's smarter than everybody else. Yeah, he started and, realizing it in the '70s with C's Candy. That's when he first it was the light exactly. bulb moment. Yeah, exactly. And and so 
a lot of, but then what happened is that instead of saying we have a new thing, right? Mm -hmm. We have a, we have a totally new thing. It, it was this, because now value as a concept, as this canon of the markets had been established, people just kind of kept shifting and changing and editing their definition of value as the world changed. But to me, those were two very different exercises. One was a deep value, buy broken stuff so cheaply that you it's hard not to make money as long as you're patient and you're willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. Two, we're going to buy things. We're very price sensitive investors. And which is why like, you know, in by the time you got to the dot-com crisis, when people were valuing things on clicks, right? That's that's when you have a period of time when, you know, that sort of value investing will struggle during that period of time when people are flooding into those things, but also create opportunities for them. And so the answer that I don't know today is did the crazy disruptive tech wave that we saw, you know, the NASDAQ going up 425% or something over the course of, of the 2010s, did that create distortions of a sufficient size that if you're a value investor today and you're looking stock by stock, you're saying it's a no-brainer and nobody else is interested in it. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. That's the question that I would ask. Yeah. I think there are some that are out there today. At the same time, in terms of all of the, those NASDAQ stocks that did very well, I think the initial value investing reaction in like 2013, 2014 is like, oh, this is just tech bubble 2.0. And that's not what happened. They were actually right. like phenomenal world-changing businesses and it wasn't a repeat of the 90s. But yeah, we'll, we'll see how it turns out. <laughs> yeah. So let's start talking about, let's shift gears, start talking about hedge funds and your ETFs. So you spent a long time dealing with the hedge fund industry. So before we rip apart hedge funds, what are the good things about hedge funds? Yeah, so so we started 15 years ago doing something called replicating hedge funds. Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, pejoratively, they would say we copy them cheaply. And, you know, I would argue that everybody in this business copies everybody. <laughs> like, right. Like, like no, nobody's like, oh, that guy has a great idea over there. But I, you know, I didn't think of it myself. I'm not going to invest in it. Of course. Well, you well, you're copying it without stealing money from yeah. <laughs> naive yeah. investors. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the interesting thing about, and, and what we do is something called factor-based replication. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, as you can tell, I'm not a quant, but I'm really interested in, in, in kind of the the evolution of the investor side of it. Like, you know, what is it that, and, and what, so, in essence, what we do is we use these risk models to look at recent hedge fund performance and try to figure out their big things. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we're looking at a big portfolio of fundamentally driven hedge funds, we want to know the obvious questions. Are they, you know, over their skis on equity risk? Have they dialed back? Are they, have they shifted from, you know, do they still believe the U.S. is going to be the dominant market or are they kind of, you know, are they betting on Europe? Are they shifting from growth to value? Kind of the big things. As a hedge fund guy, Right. This was never controversial, right? Okay. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, hedge funds, hedge fund managers know you do all of this work to understand, you know, to buy individual stocks, et cetera, et cetera. But if every time you look at, you know, you're looking at an industry and every time you find the cheapest stocks in Europe, like by an order of, you know, 50% cheaper or 50% of the price of what you can buy in the U.S., a lot of these guys will be like, all right, well, now I'm going to I'm going to focus on the European stocks. And then, well, if these are cheap, then you find other things are cheap. So these what are called factor rotations happen because stock pickers and bond pickers are doing this constant relative value analysis. The way I described Seth of kind of having this matrix of where things like it's almost like a heat map of what's what's cheap and expensive around the world. 
And the way they figured it out is by living in the footnotes. So actually, er early when I looked at this, I went back to a friend of mine who was a bow post and running risk at the time. And I said, I said, does this sound crazy to you? And he said, he said, no, it sounds obvious. But he said, now, now we're weird, right? We're not just going out and buying publicly traded value stocks and shifting like that. I mean, we've got, but if you could identify some of these underlying factors that we're interested in, but in a more esoteric way, you know, whether it's, I don't know, structured credit or, or real estate or whatever. But, you know, but when you get to the end of the year, the math is just sort of obvious. It's the big trades that are going to make a difference. You know, if, if you buy a 50 U.S. stocks that you love and the equity markets go down 40, you're going down. Right. right? It's, and so the problem that I had was, there are two problems I had. One was that most professional investors found this too simple. And most professional investors who channel money to hedge funds like what they do. Right? Yeah. They, they like going and sitting across from a hedge fund manager and hearing his story, not about the big shifts in his portfolio and what the tell that they want to hear. I mean, today it would be like, you know, well, you know, how many rate hikes do you think are left? You know, like, you know, why do you like this stock over that stock? It's very much of a storytelling business. Plus, a lot of people had economic skin in the game. And so, you know, with me coming with a, we can do what they do for a quarter of the fees and, you know, and lo and behold, we pass some of that savings back to you and you outperform and you give you diversification. We do all these other things. For a lot of people, that was a very, very threatening thing. I mean, people, yeah. one, one guy described it was like, because it was, I mean, you know, hedge funds was the definition of the active management business. And it was, and and so I was like, one guy sort of mockingly said, Weird. I was like, John, I was crashing the party right yeah i was I, I was i was john bogle standing in the lobby of you know fidelity in and and trying to sell people on index funds basically but what it also the second problem was it showed that most hedge funds are pretty on average are pretty uninteresting mm -hmm. in that equity markets go up 10 they tend to go up three equity markets go down 10 they tend to go down three that that the the world that I had grown up in in the 1990s in hedge funds where they were doing things that were really different and really idiosyncratic, it was in part because it was a small business. Okay. Right? You can do those things when you're very small. Now, there have been a lot of changes and innovations in, in, in the business in certain areas. But if you look at the broad hedge fund industry, as if you're starting with a portfolio of stocks and bonds, it's just not that interesting. And so, so in 2015, we started to focus on an area that we thought was actually really interesting called managed futures. And managed futures is the polar opposite of value investing. Right. Okay? There is no discussion of intrinsic value. Basically, a typical managed futures fund fires up a computer, looks at 70 different futures markets. They, and the reason they do futures is because you could go seamlessly long and short. You don't have to worry about borrowing stock and selling it. And you know you want to short gold no one you sell futures contracts you know you want to buy crude oil you buy futures contracts and and it's it's the antithesis of it because it's it's the underlying driver it's called trend following right mm -hmm. and so you know in a strange way one of the philosophical similarities between value investing and managed futures is that some subset of the investor population out there is is you know will misprice things you know they'll 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 buy too much on the way up, they'll sell too much on the way down. And and so for a guy with value investor wiring, this is doing something, it's doing the trades that you're not doing. Okay, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But yeah, so, yeah, super, super interesting. But, and this and this managed future strategy is packaged in the DBMF ETF. 
Exactly. Right. And okay. so, so, so what we do is again, we're not, I would say that we're not managed futures guys. Rather, what we're doing is we're looking at what 20 of the largest funds are doing and we're figuring out their big trades on Monday and then, and then implementing it ourselves. So if they're long crude oil, and we, if we estimate that they're long crude oil to the tune of 19%, we'll be long crude oil to the tune of 19% by the end of the day on Monday. And, and then we do it cheaply and it's efficient and it's an ETF. So you can see our positions and stuff. So what, and, and what, and what we're doing is we're really trying to provide the index answer for this mm-hmm. case. Now, the reason, again, what these guys do is they are looking for there. There's no discussion of intrinsic value. There's no prediction as to where rates are going to be in two months. It's technical analysis when you get down to it. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, is, it in, is it in a trend? We're is it in a trend, go, right? right. And, and and everybody has different ways of, of of skinning that cat. Some people, you know, like, well, I care most about what happened over the next six weeks. And other guys says, well, I care about what happened this. And, and well, I size my position differently. And, well, I don't like equities. I don't like everyone has different ways in which they build these models. But the under, mm-hmm. under underpinning it, of it is that there are lots of waves in the market going up or down. And if you can selectively buy or sell them, most of the time, it's two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back. Most of the time, because the markets are pretty efficient, but every now and then you have these kind of blockbuster periods. You know, So the space overall, I can't talk about our performance, but the space overall was up 20% last year yeah. when stocks and bonds were both down. So why is that? Right. Because going back to this 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 core question of, you know, and this isn't saying why is something cheap, yeah. but this is saying why didn't other people make more money on this? Right. So here's a space that and and the answer is that it's a little bit more subtle. It's that people in the asset in the allocator business cannot change their portfolios fast. Every pension plan out there has 10-year assumptions as to what mm. the S&P is going to do, what this is going to do. And, you know, and and, and consultants come in and they say, uh, you know, not only are, are we going to tell you that emerging markets are going to do 218 basis points better than the S&P over the next 10 years, but we're going to tell you the exact volatility and correlation statistics. It is, it is the art by which people construct these portfolios. Wealth managers do it as well, right? But the underlying assumption is it's a bad idea to move fast. Right. And when they move, it's very much at the margin. You know? Yeah. So if you went to a client and were like, hey, I'm going to go long the market this month. And then, oh, two months later, I'm shorting the market and I'm going long gold because that's in an uptrend. It'd be like, you're out of your mind, right? You're out of your mind, right? <laughs> right, right, right because, because in a sense, the you know whether it's the pension plan, right? Why mm-hmm. do you, you know, pension plans want to hear some smart guy come in with a big presentation and tell them they're going to do exactly 7.5% per annum for the next 10 years, right? And- and like, that's the answer they want to hear. Individuals, you know, from their advisors want to hear that they've got somebody who is the steady hand at the wheel, mm-hmm. who's going to help them grow their money over the next 20, 30 years and and, and let them sleep at night. Right. right. And so if you are the person, as you say, who's flipping around, you're not making anybody, you're not doing your job. Right. Yeah. So, so, so the opportunity as an investor, though, is that sometimes the world moves faster then people can mm. adapt, right? So, so inflation starts to come back and it's early 2021 and you are a long-term allocator. What do you do, right? If somebody told you, I think there's a 90% chance we're going to have you know, meaningful inflation. I actually, wrote, I wrote a paper on this in, in early 2021 and I went on and I, I talked to guys about it. I said, because the guys that look at inflation comes back, that kind of upsets the business model. What I realized was that 
everybody had a low rates bet on. If you own the S&P 500, you were very heavy in tech stocks, the valuation of which is supported by zero interest rates, right? If you had a 60-40 portfolio, you were sitting on bonds with duration that were suicidal from an investing perspective and less rates stayed low. If you were mm -hmm. buying private credit, you know, illiquid, expensive private credit with a 6% yield, you sure as hell were, weren't betting that cash would be earning five, three years from then, right? right. So, so the point is that, that structurally, 20% of the time, you know, the world is going to change faster. And this is a nimble strategy that actually works. So what I tell people is, look, if you are, and I wrote this thing called why every value investor should own managed futures is because there are going to be periods of time where things like this, like if you went a genius, went hundred percent into value stocks last year, you're still down 8%. You weren't down 30, <laughs> like the NASDAQ, but you're still down. Yeah. So, you know, again, I think diversification and I, Paul Samuelson, Nobel laureate said, you know, diversification is the one true free lunch in finance, but that also means doing things that are really different. Yeah. You know, that think differently than you do. Yeah. It's not uh, just stocks and bonds. It's, you have to have some other assets in, in the mix. Yeah. You know, and so, and because look, no, I mean, none of us has a crystal ball. And so, but if we're, if, if, if the ultimate goal of this is to diversify, to bring more stability into portfolios. And by the way, I, I mean, I just published something on this. It's, it's on our website about the, the, the seismic change in the wealth management business. The whole modern wealth management business was, was based on the idea that stocks and bonds would be inversely correlated. Mm -hmm. And that's been true for 20, 30 years, but it's not true over most periods of time. And it's, it's, it's really not true when interest rate, when inflation's above, above two and a half or 3%. So if we're structurally in a world with higher inflation, stocks and bonds are going to be going up and down. That was the cornerstone of helping people to sleep at night because the vol, standard deviation of a 60-40 portfolio was like 6% five years ago. That's okay. really low for something that was earning double-digit returns. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the sharp ratio, of, of close to double-digit, the sharp ratio of a 60-40 portfolio was north of one for most of the 2010s. Like that's better than 95% of hedge funds. So if you put your money into a 60-40 portfolio, it, it called it a hedge fund and didn't charge a lot in fees in 2010, <laughs> 10 years later, you have a great business, at least from a returns perspective. It'd but, be funny if someone was like, did that and it was a black box strategy. And we're doing this <laughs> we're incredible doing this. strategy we can reveal to you. And <laughs> well, well, then you run into the next problem, which people would say like, you know, well, let's compare it to my 60-40 portfolio. And they'd be like, oh, wait a second. But- but what it did is it, but but what now what's happened is that both stock and bond balls have gone up mm -hmm. and they're moving together. So so that same portfolio has a 12 vol today. So basically not changing a single line item in your portfolio, you're going up and down on a roller coaster when it used to be a smooth ride. And so and so that's where I actually think I think my bet on managed futures is basically if you look across the world of things that a wealth manager can put into their portfolio. Going back to this point about like, like overall hedge funds, it's not interesting if you have hedge funds go up 30% of the market, then go down 30% of the market and up 30% of the market and down 30% right. of the market. But if you have something, and, and because what these guys do is legitimately different, it has a zero correlation to both stocks and bonds over time. I make the argument that whether you're a value investor, you're a growth investor, you're a 60-40 guy, you're an 80-20 guy, a 20-80 guy, whatever it is, this should be 
part of your portfolio because it it just makes sense that this is doing something different what from from what you're doing and can meaningfully improve potentially improve your returns or or reduce risk in your portfolios now what do you think is the right allocation for an investor to manage futures like say you had a traditional 60 40 portfolio and you wanted to add managed futures to the mix what do you think is is appropriate there you know if i, I mean, obviously it depends but yeah no, i mean if look if i if i if i had a billionaire come to me and say you know i want to construct a super efficient portfolio and i'm giving you a billion dollars and i'll talk to you in 10 years i would do some combination of global stocks through indices some mm-hmm. combination of bonds through indices and probably about 20% managed futures and but I never recommend that a typical advisor put 20% into it sure. because when I'm talking to an RAA and, and people who bought DBMF has about a billion dollars in it now, the people who were early adopters of it were RAAs, independent RAAs who really believe they really want to try to help their clients to grow their assets and 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 help them sleep at night. This is a great strategy to economically sleep at night. But it's not a great strategy to explain why you're sleeping at night because because it's much more comforting to say like if you if you're a value guy and your stocks go down you've got a great narrative why, why you don't sell it they're cheaper you know, they're cheaper it's, it's right? even better <laughs> you don't want, and, but and the implication is you don't want to be the dummy who sold at the bottom mm. right it's it's you know it's we know that when equity markets go down you shouldn't be selling at the bottom i mean of course nobody really kn- knows when the bottom is but but at least it's it's the it's a story that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Remain invested. And so part of the job of these advisors is get people to remain invested. When one of the problems with managed futures is if it's 10, 15, 20% of your portfolio and you're on the golf course and the guy says, you know, hey, what's this other thing in there? You know, I saw the S&P was up 5% last month and this thing was down 2%. What's going on over there? And you say, oh, don't worry. It, ha- it hasn't been a great market because uh, there were some sharp trend reversals in the commodity space and blah, 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 blah. Like mm. that guy's not sleeping at night. It, yeah. This is He probably doesn't know what a futures contract is. He probably yeah. doesn't know. I mean, he may be great at his business, but this is getting into the arcana of of how and why people make money. So what I tell people is that, you you know, probably a core allocation is 5%. In, mm-hmm. a, in a typical wealth management portfolio that basically you're going to probably want to have, you know, instead of a 60-40 portfolio, you probably want to have 50% in stocks, 30% in bonds, and 20% in other stuff, a third leg of the stool. And within that, I, you know, to me, managed futures should be a quarter of that or half of that as, as a cornerstone analysis. Then, and something like gold, you can put in there, and commodities, and things that, but but you're starting from, we want this to be a legitimately different us leg of the stool we don't want it to be you know like 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 private equity is equity right it's just it's equity with a with a cape on it you know (laughs) private you know (laughs) private private credit is 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 debt with just a you know like like tall shoes and a big hat i mean it's like it's it's you're you're in the same all you're doing is you're, you're you're bolstering your two existing legs of the stool and and i think when you get to 2030 the smart guys are going to be the ones who realize that, you know, like, like, you know, what, what will the genius allocator look like in my mind in, in 2030? It's going to be the guy who stuck to 60, 40 through the 2010s, realized the world changed two years ago, 
and and reconfigured their portfolio gradually in 2022-2023 for a new world order. And the new world order is that the 60/40 is not going to hedge each other as well. You know, aggregate returns will be certainly on the equity side will be lower than this decade than they were in the last decade. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you know, maybe the they start shifting more money out of expensive US stocks into other markets and that works, but it's going to be it's going to be people who who embrace the idea that the world has changed then and then and then try to think about how to how to how to address it. Interesting. So with your funds, so with your your ability to replicate a lot of hedge fund strategies in ETF format, how do you think that's going to change the hedge fund industry over time because it seems to me like this business model that a lot of them are using is not sustainable. I don't think it'll change it one bit. Really? Um, wow. Okay. Yeah, no, cuz I think I think the and it goes back to what I learned in that, well, I should say that, that that might be a slight exaggeration. There's been a 30-year path in the managed future space toward commoditization and reduction in fees. And we're just the next, you know, brick on that road, basically. Okay. But the amazing thing about it is that and look, look, commoditization is great if you're an investor and you like what's being commoditized. Mm-hmm. You know, like like the fact that you can go and find 37 great brands of cars, you know, priced between 40 and $45,000, right? It's the cars are still great. You love it. You know, nobody, nobody says it's commoditized. I don't want a car. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so, so if you can commoditize something and it still has the value and what 2022 showed with a strategy is even a commoditized form of the strategy is still incredibly value in your, in, in, valuable in your portfolio, as opposed to the old myth, which is like when the hoi polloi, I mean, you know, when 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 the masses are investing in it, I'm not interested anymore because the great opportunity has been lost. Right. Mm. That's the that's kind of the old thing. So, look, so a lot of people who invest in hedge funds invest in it. It's not a cold calculation of, you know, what's the way that I can maximize returns and reduce my fees for my clients, et cetera. It's it's often it's sexy. You know, it's we're investing with this guy and we just went to his investor dinner and he told us these really interesting insights and a lot of guys have economic skin in the game. So, right. so I'm a consultant. And if I tell you, and, and I'm charging 30 basis points for helping you with this hedge fund portfolio, and then, and you look at it and say, well, that's great. Wow. Well, I'm already paying 30, 300 basis points. So at least I've got these, you know, that seems like cheap insurance and it's relative to what I've got. Now somebody comes along and says, but we're going to do it in an ETF with 85 basis point expense ratios. And you're like, oh, that's great. Now I'd like to pay you eight basis points. Right. Mm. So there will always be different investor groups. Now, look, 15 or 20 years from now, you may have CalPERS or some big institutional investor, you know, CalSTRS or somebody saying, you know, well, actually, now we've decided to just do it through an ETF. That's a long way off. That's it's, you know, there is $400 billion or so in managed futures hedge funds. Mutual funds, and some of them are very, very, very good, have been around for 13, 14 years. It's $25 billion. That's it. Sometimes those mutual funds do better than the higher cost hedge funds, but people still buy the higher cost hedge funds because they're in the hedge fund investing business. They don't buy mutual funds and that's more prestigious for them. ETFs, I met with guys yesterday who run, we were the largest ETF. They run the second largest ETF and both, look, I, you know, I mean, they have a great product. I think we have a great product with slightly different approach to, to trying to get the same question. Between the two of us, what percentage of the ETF world 
this thing that I've described, right, has zero correlation of stocks and bonds, does best when you need it the most, doesn't have crazy drawdowns, you know, can gives, gives you high returns over cash over time. What percentage of the ETF world do you think we are? The two of us, number one and number two in the space. Small little drop. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, we're two basis points. Yeah, gotcha. Right? I mean, we're two basis points. It's to become 10 basis points, 20 basis points, 30 basis points. Now, interesting thing is, is, that, is that people are sort of figuring this out. Because again, one of the great things about being a generalist at a place like Valpost, like you say, like, what's the skill that you bring that the specialist can't see? It's, you know, history, you know, broader opportunities, you can create this mosaic of things. So I was on a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago, we we're talking about private credit. And, you know, and there was a, some chart like yeah, private credit, it's a $1.4 trillion business today. You know, I mean, the LBO business is a multi-trillion dollar business. Now it's called private equity because it sounds better. You know, the <laughs> the uh, the hedge fund is a multi-trillion dollar business. These were all cottage industries at some point. Uh-huh. But, but what they all figured out was that they figured out a way to make the case that this should be a strategic long-term allocation in various pools of capital. And and so what we and this other firm, you know, Mount, Luc- Mount Lucas need to do is we need to give the typical ETF portfolio guy who's probably never looked at futures never looked at managed futures you know his 60 40 portfolios have worked for 10 of the past 12 years we have got to help that guy with enormous amount of education helping that guy to understand what this strategy is you know how we're trying to help people to get access to it in a way without because ultimately like what's the measure of a great diversifier you're happy with it in five years Right, you're happy with it in ten years, and there there are a lot of landmines in this space that can actually make it quite difficult. You can you can you can get the space right, you can get the the guy wrong. You know, you can you can invest at the wrong time, you can pitch at the wrong way. There are a lot of there are a lot of mistakes. What what Bill Ackman would call unforced errors that people make when they are investing in managed futures. We're trying to help people to solve those and educate people on it. If um, someone wanted to learn more about, like, a, like an investor, an ETF investor like myself, wanted to learn more about managed futures, are there any good books or resources you would recommend to educate themselves about it? There are, but they so Katie Kaminsky, who's the CIO or head of research or something at, at Alpha Simplex, has, has written some stuff. And there are a few. If you go to Google and you say managed futures, there, there are books. Okay, well, it has. We should wrap up. So it's been great talking to you today. Are there any? Uh, is there anything you'd like to add? And what are the best ways to reach you? Yeah. So uh, look, I'm on. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I think there's a fake version of me on Twitter as well. So don't be fooled. <laughs> <laughs> my, my my Twitter handle is Andrew D Beer One or Andrew Beer One. I actually forgot whether it's with one on Twitter. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm pretty obviously on, on LinkedIn. You can reach out to me through that. Our website is a is dbi.co, www.dbi.co, no M, where we do publish research and things like that. But I, I'm pretty accessible. So if if anybody has any questions, I'm constrained in terms of what I can say for compliance reasons specifically about the fund, but I'm I'm pretty easy, I'm pretty good at calling people back and and you know, again, happy to I, I love talking about this stuff. So happy to field questions. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.